I'm going to be on a flight at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. Oh, that's gross. But I do like your hair color. It's very pretty. Yeah. It's giving me serotonin because work's cracking down on piercings, so I can't get a new one in my ear. And I told my family I would not get a tattoo until after, and up my sixth tattoo until after the wedding, so I can save some money. Oh, okay. What do you want your, like, next tattoo to be? And also slash next piercing. Or, like, what would you have gotten pierced? Just in, more, in my cartilage again. Oh. They can't, don't let you have cartilage Mm-mm. pierced? Why? That's the sheriff's office. That doesn't make sense. I could see, like, facial piercing. Like, I have a septum. I could see, like, that, but... All right, so your 7 a.m. flight? Where are yeah. you going? Utah to see Curtis's family. Oh, that's nice. Are you spending Thanksgiving out there? Mm-hmm. I have oh. to fly back on the Friday after because I work that weekend. Oh, that stinks. But at least you'll have like a, oh, about a week, yeah. Yeah. So that'll be good. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, it's rough. <laughs> Flying that early. Yes, and it was, it's been rough at work recently. We just had that shooting mm-hmm. on Right Out Road on Thursday. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah, I was on radio when that happened, so I was the one in charge of dispatching all the deputies. Oh, goodness. We had aviation and canine out. I think at one point, the total amount of people dispatched to that call was 77. Wow, that's crazy. They blocked off about a quarter mile of the road. Wow. And it was near an elementary school and a middle school, so those schools had to go on lockdown just as a precaution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Are you guys going to decorate for the holidays or anything? Yep, we got a fake tree in my shed. Aw, that's exciting. Yeah. Are you, a, are you a Christmas tree before Thanksgiving or after no, Thanksgiving? No, my tradition in my family has always been the day after Thanksgiving we go get our Christmas tree. Yeah. But then we had an issue with, the, for a few years in a row, we would get bugs from the trees, so we just moved to a fake tree with like a Christmas tree scented candle. Oh, okay. Oh, you guys did real Christmas trees? Oh, that's cool. For a while, and then the sap also started getting on the floor and ruining it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've never had a real Christmas tree. Always fake. We got a new tree about maybe six years ago because we had, like, a regular just green one. Now this one is, like, the white plasticky snow that's on it. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And except the pets like to eat the plastic snow, and, and then they throw up, and then they go right back to eating the snow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's like, you think you'd learn your lesson that that makes you throw up. Just a little bit, but I guess not. <laughs> yeah. uh, Alright, just- so today's episode is going to be kind of disgusting. Alright, I'm ready. We're going to talk about the body farm and the stages of decomposition. Alright, I'm really excited. This is actually, I, I think body farms are cool. I always wanted, if I die, put my body in a body farm. I'll, I'll mention it later down, but um, you can pre-register to have your body donated to the farm. Nice. Anyway, so the body farm is one of the most important locations, actually, in forensics. So today we're going to be talking about actually one of the most important locations in the field of forensics. It is the Forensic Anthropology Center at the University of Tennessee. Wait, is that the Knoxville location? Yeah. I'm going there in a few weeks. To the body farm or to Knoxville? 
to not well i'm going to the university of tennessee for something for my fraternity but like maybe i'll i'm getting there maybe. early on friday so maybe i'll just detour and go see the body farm um it's like it's big but it has like barbed wire fence i don't know if you have to contact the department I'll do some research. I'll be like, hey, it's just me. Can I tour your, <laughs> Can I tour your facilities? It's for science. <laughs> so Forensic Anthropology Center is its professional name, but it's more well known as the Body Farm. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, this place has fascinated me since I first heard about it in high school. I was so interested in all the kind of research they're doing, the fact that they're allowed to do that research with human bodies. And um, at the end of the episode, I'll... I'll let you guys know about my favorite book that was written about the body farm by the people who started the body farm. Okay. It's so good. So there's been many important studies that were conducted at the body farm, and so it's it's really infamous in the field of forensic science. I'm sorry, I just breathed in and I heard my throat weed. I was like, I heard a whistle. That was my throat. Oh. (laughs) Also, you're going to understand why I tell you, don't poke dead whales. Is it the gas? We'll get into that. Okay. But yeah, do not poke dead whales. All right. And don't provoke a sleeping dragon. (laughs) (laughs) What's the actual reason behind it? (laughs) Isn't that that Harry Potter quote? (laughs) Draco and Norman Quinn's... There's like a Latin quote in Harry Potter and it's like, don't provoke a sleeping dragon or something like that. That's what it translates to. I I took five years of Latin. I'm technically (laughs) fluent. I I know things. Alright, so the body farm was first opened in 1981 by Dr. William M. Bass. The facility is dedicated to the research not only on human decomposition, but modern human variation, so any changes in the human body as like evolution. It's the first of its kind that actually permits the systemic study of human decomposition, and Dr. Bass was interested in understanding the process of how a body reacts from the time of death and the time of decay. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So the facility actually allows scientists to better understand the decomposition and develop techniques to get information such as the timing and circumstances around death. Like I said earlier, it's it's big. It's about two and a half acres. I think almost three of wooded plots. So it's not just an open field. They have trees there because you need the different types of environments. And there is a razor wire fence that marks the perimeter. When the facility first started, they began with one body that was donated, and it now has more than 150. Wow. That's and those really are ones cool. that are like actively decomposing, not the ones that have already been skeletonized. Okay. That's really cool. Yeah. Uh, they're placed around the property and left to decompose in various conditions, and some of the, inc- some of the conditions that they have include like a body locked in the trunk of a car mm-hmm. and then with the heat how that would how would that would interact with the body um a body being underwater in shallow graves buried under a layer of concrete and a traffic fatality that goes undiscovered for days so like someone hits a tree no one sees them they're discovered a few days later how the decomposition is going to affect that okay and also The entire process is meticulously documented, beginning to end. Everything is is documented, the whole process, why it's put out somewhere, like photos, the stage of decomposition, what kind of bugs are present. And notably studied are the sequence and the speed of decomposition, as well as the effects of insect activity and other scavengers. 
Okay. All right, so the body form, the idea of it actually began in the 1960s when Dr. Bass was teaching at the University of Kansas. Someone had asked him if he could tell how long a specific cow had been dead for, and Bass admitted he could not tell. So after that, Dr. Bass claims there was one case and his mistakes will haunt him to this day, and it became nationally known. So I, I'm not sure if you know about this, but... I don't think so. Because it did happen decades ago, but Dr. Bass was called to a family cemetery as the state of Tennessee's first ever forensic anthropologist. Mm -hmm. So he already had a lot on his shoulders, being the first forensic anthropologist in the state. The new owners of the family property, because it was like a big farm area, and there was a family graveyard on, on the property too. They noticed that the grave of Lieutenant Colonel William Shy, who was a veteran of the Civil War, had recently been disturbed. Mm -hmm. As in, like, the dirt on top was all messed up, so it looked like someone was trying to dig. The new owners, curiosity got the best of them. They dug further, and they found a headless corpse with a tuxedo on, oh. on top of uh, Shy's coffin. Oh, nice. Yeah, when I also see disturbed plots of land, my first thought is, let's Especially dig. Especially a specific plot in a cemetery, in like a family yeah. cemetery. Yeah. Obviously, you're going to go digging. Yeah, that's my first thought, too. I'm like, hey, let's see what's under there. Let's not call the police. <laughs> let's grab the shovel. So the body that was found on top of the coffin, Dr. Bass observed that it had, and I quote, pinkness of the flesh and relative intactness of the body. And... After, the, after viewing that, Bass estimated that the individual had been dead no longer than one year. Okay. He was very but far he was, off. He was still, I was going to say the flesh is still. The flesh was still pink. Yeah, like, I don't think after a year. How old do you think the body was? I, I, like, I don't know, like maybe like a couple days? Less than? 112 years. What? Yep, How is it still pink? The body was none other than Lieutenant Colonel William Shy himself. They didn't put him in a coffin. <laughs> it didn't get into the specifics of why, but they did figure out um, it was not a recent murder victim, as the new owners had thought. But they were able also to tell because the head of the, of the body was in the coffin. It what? was in a... Let me see if I had it written down. The, wait, the head was in the coffin, but the body was on top of the coffin? Yeah. I couldn't find too much detail about the circumstances regarding that. But yeah, so it was not a recent murder victim at all. And it was a cast iron coffin. What? That's crazy. So the fact that he was off by that many years, Dr. Bass said it complete, it, it humiliated him and gave him a reason to create the body farm so he could discover why the body was still pink. Like, what kind of preservation techniques were going on. Yeah. Um, you said he was a lieutenant colonel, right? Mm -hmm. What? I don't know if they did this back in the day, but I thought that people who were, um, like, in the military were buried in uniform. No? It said he was a veteran, so I think... I don't think he passed in action. I think oh. it was after the fact, which is why he was buried in the tuxedo. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I know some, some people that are in the military that retire out or, you know, or veterans, yeah. they still want to be buried in uniform, but yeah. I guess that's a choice at that point. So the facility was approved to enable the study of the subject, and by 1981, construction was completed after one year, and they received their first body. 
Oh. It was the body of a 73-year-old male, and it was his daughter that donated the body. Oh, that's kind of wholesome. Mm-hmm. And I do actually have a kind of funny story about the body farm being built. The story always makes me laugh whenever I hear it. So there's also, since it's part of a university, there's a medical building somewhat nearby. Mm-hmm. After the body farm was built, employees started coming in earlier and earlier to work because they learned if they come to work late, they will have to park in the parking spots where you can smell the odors. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. That'll get them there on time. (laughs) And then I do want to talk about what, how the body farm does handle like the donations and the families. So the bodies that help with the research, the body farm are given by donation and they receive over a hundred donations a year. About 60% of the bodies are donated by family members and medical examiners of if in case like a body has gone identified for a specific period of time. But there's also an option to like pre-register to have your body donated when you die. And I didn't write it down, but last I last I saw there were over like a thousand people on that list who have pre-registered. Oh wow. How do you wanna be I don't know. I'm a part of my body. I'm an organ donor. Mm-hmm. My mom's I a nurse, too. so I've always heard the importance of doing it. So I want to be able to help anyone I can. I don't know if I want the rest of my body because I want some like some place for like my family members to visit. Yeah, it's also something I do have to talk over like with my fiance. Yeah, because I don't want him to just get it. it it's a matter that you both have to discuss yeah. and be on board with. Yeah. Do you know how you want to? I want to be donated to science. And then once I'm a skeleton, I want to be cremated. And then you can just scatter me wherever. But I also want a tree planted in memoriam of my dad. I've seen things online where you can use your ashes and make like a diamond or like the hilt of a sword or something even. Okay, that's dope. Actually, I changed my mind. (laughs) I want to be made into a sword. (laughs) (laughs) The family sword handed down, or you make a sword, and every time a family member dies, you put another diamond on it and make it with the ashes. Oh, I love that. And then slay all of the people who wronged <laughs> me in my lifetime. <laughs> yeah, so the students, they take great care of every single body that's donated because they know it's not necessarily an easy decision, especially knowing that your loved one is going to be decaying out in the, out in the environment. Mm-hmm. But... Families are aware of how the bodies are going to be used for the research. They're well aware that it's for the body farm, that they are, that the bodies are going to be studied through decomposition. The families are also told, like, what type of research is being conducted. Like, is it bugs, something like that? And they let the families know, like, all of the benefits of studying the field of decomposition. And once the remains are skeletal... They are cleaned, and the families, if they choose, can actually visit the facility, and students will have a padded table and arrange the skeleton out if they wanted to see the, if they wanted to see their loved one's skeleton like that. Okay. But yeah, they take great care, and then the skeletons are then put up in, a, put in boxes in their office. That way they can study the human variation side of are there any different changes in the bones and like a specific population as time goes on? So that's the basics about the body farm. Mm-hmm. So now that you're somewhat knowledgeable about the body farm and the type of research conducted there, we're going to talk decomposition. Yay. Yay. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. 
All right. So decomposition is the name that's given to the process in which organic matter breaks down. We're going to be focusing on vertebrates, and they have five recognized stages of decomposition. They have fresh, bloat, active decay, advanced decay, and dry slash skeletonized remains. Okay. So it's important for investigators to know each stage and the characteristics because it can help them determine that post-mortem interval of how long it's been since that person has died. And so the stages do need to be studied because there is a large amount of factors that can affect the rate of decomposition and factors that uh, some of these factors include but are not limited to temperature, burning of the remains, like if someone tries to burn the body to get away with a crime, the humidity, the size of the body, the type of clothing they're wearing, and their cause of death. So there's so many different factors that can affect, like speed up the rate, slow down the rate. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of research that needs to be done. So the fresh stage is characterized by the remains staying intact and insect free. This can vary depending on, like the time frame can vary. And this is also when you will see the different mortise stages. Mm -hmm. So there's actually a lesser known mortise stage called power mortise. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah, I do remember this. Yep, it occurs almost instantly within about 15 to 20 minutes. The body's skin will rapidly become pale due to the lack of blood circulation within the body. It's not very useful in determining time since death, other than has it been less than 30 minutes or more than 30 minutes. (laughs) That's the first thing that occurs. The next one is, the next mortis stage is liver mortis. For all of our livers out there. (laughs) (laughs) So, So liver mortis is the result of pallor mortis. It's caused by the cessation of capillary circulation. Consequently, liver mortis is characterized by the pooling of blood in the lower portion of the body. Because it does use, because it's based on gravity, it does not always pool in the feet or the lower extremities. It depends on the position of the body at the time of death or shortly thereafter. So this will start to happen about 20 to 30 minutes after death but it's not easily visible to the naked eye until about two hours after death, which is, it makes sense. Because mm-hmm. all the hemoglobin has to sink to the bottom and of the body. Yeah. And the size of the purplish patches that you'll see from the blood pooling will increase in size during the next three to six hours. Fixation occurs during this time, which means that the patches will no longer move from any movement of the body. So if you have a body laying and it's been laying there about six hours, and then you try to move it, like roll it from its back onto its stomach, the pools are going to stay at the, on the back of the body mm-hmm. just because that's where the fixation occurred. That's where they were for the six hours that this happened. And whenever capillaries are compressed, such as like skin against the ground, these areas are going to have a lack of blood pooling and a lack of color. Yeah, so it'll show up like it looks like a sunburn when you push a sunburn and it's like white. Yep, so you can also tell, like, if someone died naked, if someone died wearing clothing, because even the folds and fabric, you'll be able to see that. That'll compress some of the capillaries, so you mm-hmm. won't have pooling in the folds of the fabric. Yeah. It's really interesting to see photos of it, and in my time at the CSI Academy of Florida, when they had summer camps there, they would show a picture of a body with the pooling and go, tell me how this person died or what position were they in. Mm-hmm. 
That's really cool. It it makes you feel really intelligent when you can tell like that's that's not right. They were not in that position right when they died. Yeah, it's it's really cool. So the intensity of the color does does depend on the amount of hemoglobin in the blood because that's what gives red blood cells their color. So that's what's going to cause the purple per, the purplish pooling. Um, this is useful to investigators to not only determine the approximate time of death, but if the body has been moved. And I would like to take this time to thank my lovely co-host and co-creator of Live, Laugh, Liver Mortis, because she came up with our name. Oh, thanks. That was the first name that you had, the first idea of a name that you had told me <laughs> immediately made me start laughing, so it was a very easy decision to make it. <laughs> And the name was actually chosen, I think, a month before we recorded our first episode. Yeah. we. This has been something in the workshop for, like, quite a hot minute. Over six months. Yeah. Easily. <laughs> easily. All right. Now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Do-do-do-do-do-do. Boo! <laughs> <laughs> so the next process that will begin during the fresh stage is algor mortis. And this is the process of the body cooling in temperature until it reaches the ambient temperature of the environment. So the time of death could be accurately estimated if the body cooled at a uniform rate, which of course it does not. So there exists a narrow range of body temperature and different things can affect, can affect this like physical activity and like specific diseases, infections that can actually maintain or even raise the body temperature after death. Like when, if you get like an infected cut, you know how it feels like really warm. Mm-hmm. If you have that, can play a part in keeping your body temperature very high even after you die. Would the same be like if someone died with a fever? It would take a long, it longer. Would take longer for the body to reach ambient temperature, just because it does have to. It's a longer range that it has to go mm-hmm. to reach that temperature. Okay. It also depends on, like, air conditioning. Are you indoors, outdoors? Right, yeah. Due to this, you have to take into consideration any factors that could affect this, including the ones that I did mention, and also any physical factors. And that could include, like, a study shows a person being stuck in a car for days before being discovered. Obviously, they're going to have a higher temperature because if you ever get into your car in the summertime and it's a lot hotter inside the car than it is outside the car, it's going to take a lot longer for a body that's been stuck in a car like that to reach the ambient temperature, whether it's colder than the body or warmer than the body. Okay. Is the trunk of the car hotter than the inside of the car? I don't know for sure, but I would imagine because there's no windows. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Okay. So multiple studies have actually shown that the rate of cooling is not constant, but more heat is lost in the first few hours, and it it kind of slows down until the body reaches the ambient temperature. And there does exist an equation called the Glaster equation that can be used to estimate the hours elapsed since death by using rectal temperature. It's really cool that you can... I don't know how they figured out this formula, but... It gives an estimation of, obviously not down to the minutes, but mm-hmm. like this many hours, like two days ago versus two minutes ago. Right. And due to the amount of factors that can affect the change, 
the temperature change is considered an inaccurate means of determining time since death, which is therefore considered simply an estimation. Right. I was going to say, isn't time of death like the hardest thing to determine? Yeah. yeah. That's why they refer to it as the postmortem interval, which I think we discussed when we talked in episode three, talking about forensic entomology. Yeah. Go check that out if you're interested in hearing about bugs. <laughs> Don't listen to it if you're very squeamish about bugs. <laughs> And then rigor mortis is the last, like, mortis stage and the fresh stage of decomposition. It's characterized by the stiffening of limbs and can occur as soon as four hours after death. Unlike what some television crime shows portray, rigor mortis is not permanent. It breaks, yeah. Yeah, it begins to pass within hours of onset. I'm not going to go super deep into the physiology behind why rigor mortis occurs because it can get kind of confusing if you don't if you're not very well versed or have a background in biology so i'm just gonna keep it simple if anyone does want an in-depth explanation of this and wants like the technical side let us know and i can make that happen so essentially what happens is that without oxygen circulating certain enzymes are unable to perform their functions that makes sense mm -hmm. so without the oxygens an, in, an organic compound is unable to break down the structures that causes muscle relax, relaxation. So your muscles relax when that structure is broken down, when the enzymes don't work because there's no oxygen, obviously you can't break that down. And it takes a little bit for the muscles to actually get in, and like stay there, if that makes sense. Yeah. So without the structures being broken down, the muscles are unable to relax. And eventually, the enzymes are degraded enough to the point where the muscles do relax, which ends the stage of rigor mortis. And the fresh stage of decomposition ends when insect activity begins. Okay. Do you talk about fire in this? Burning? No, but um, I have a book that does have a whole chapter on that, and I can definitely do some more research into how that affects... Oh, okay. I was going to say, because, like, one of the interesting things about rigor mortis and someone who's burned is, like, the pugilistic form that they take. Like, when you burn someone, the kinetic energy from the fire makes all of your muscles contract, and they end up having... They call it the pugilistic stance, so it looks like they're fighting, where it's like their arms are close to their body and their legs are usually also in the that fighting stance, where it's almost like sense. a fetal position. But it makes it harder to tell rigor when your body is yeah. like that. Sorry for yawning. I'll open my Red Bull for once, not Monster. Oh, oh, we've changed it up. We're truly new people now that we've got our microphones working and new drinks. <laughs> I don't drink them as often because I have sugar, but I love their strawberry apricot flavor. I've never tried that. I've just had regular and blueberry. The blueberry's nasty. I don't like that one. <laughs> So the bloat stage will begin approximately three days after death, sometimes sooner because insects very quickly go to the body. It depends on their environment. This is just an estimation. And the bloat stage is when the digestive system starts digesting the bodily tissues themselves because they don't have food to digest. And during this, the bacteria will reproduce and produce gases in the body, making it swell and can make it swell up to double its body size. Which I didn't realize it could do that. Yeah, that's that. That's pretty crazy. I knew it was. I knew it made the body bloat, but I didn't know it could make it, it. It would swell up that much. Yeah, me neither. So the gases are also called putrefaction, and the odors will linger long after a body is gone. That's why cadaver dogs are so helpful because 
even if a body has been gone for a couple days, they can still lead you to the point of the last contact with the earth. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So as enzymes break down in the body, the bonds keeping the skin on keeping the skin on will start to break down, and this is when um, skin slippage occurs. This is when the top layers of skin become disconnected and can slide off the body. Even like just a little bit of pressure can slide off. Mm-hmm. And I see this happen. I don't see it, but I've heard about this happening a lot, especially in people who pass away in their bathtub with the hot water running. It very quickly breaks down those enzymes and the skin will just fall off. That's a, uh, they use that in the degloving technique where they, um, to get fingerprints, sometimes it's hard to lift prints off of fi- oh, victims yeah, that be, go through. We'll be talking about degloving in a future episode. Oh, okay. I so I'll save it then. <laughs> so then here's a fun but gross fact. Um, this is why you should not poke any dead animal, especially bloated ones. Because, for example, there are plenty of videos online of people seeing a dead whale washed up on the beach. And they're like, oh, what's the most natural thing to do? I want to poke it with a stick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, obviously. Obviously. What they don't realize is that the body swells with a very large amount of pressure. So if during the poking process the body is punctured, the dead whale will quite literally explode, sending strong putrefaction odors and bodily tissues in all directions. Mm-hmm. So there's your PSA, don't poke a dead whale. Don't poke a dead whale. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you want to smell like death. <laughs> <laughs> So during this phase is also when liver mortis is most visible to the naked eye. Again, the time frame, um, three days was just an estimation. Obviously, liver mortis is visible after just a few hours. It really depends on the environment you're in that can speed up these stages, which is why the body farm is necessary to study when the stages happen. And the gases will also attract insects and flies and they will begin to consume the tissue and multiply. So not only the gases attract the bugs, but also purge fluid. This is the fluid that is forced out of the mouth, nose, and anus due to the gas pressure in the intestines. From a biological standpoint, uh, the stage of bloating is characterized by bacterial population shifting from aerobic species or organisms that live in an oxygenated environment to anaerobic species or organisms that can live in an environment without oxygen. That's really what characterizes when the body goes into bloat. Okay. The next stage is active decay. This is the third stage of decomposition and by some it's considered to be the most significant stage because this is when the most of the body mass is lost in the decomposition process. So organs, muscles, skin, they all start to liquefy and are released into the surrounding environment, which is like that putrefaction also, which allows the cadaver dogs to locate the bodies. And the significant loss of tissue is actually mostly due to insect activity. Oh, interesting. Yeah, um, it can actually reduce a body to bones in about, give or take, 10 days. That's kind of impressive. It is, and that's just insects, not like big scavengers like animals, Mm -hmm. not like bobcats, anything like that. It's mainly insects that can do that. Wow. It's really crazy. 
So while most soft tissue, while the soft tissue will decompose, any hair, bones, cartilage, and other decay byproducts that are a bit harder in, in material, they're going to remain. So contrary to urban legend and popular belief, hair and skin do not continue to grow after death. <laughs> Is that? I've never heard that before. A lot. I, it's also seen on some crime shows, they'll say. And it's a lot of paranormal stories, too, where people say, oh, something's happening because the hair and skin or the hair and nails continue to grow after death. That's not the case. It just seems this way because the skin will shrink back, giving the appearance of that it the nails have grown yeah. and the hair. So the skin will also begin to turn black during this stage of decomposition. And this, since there's a lot more insect activity, this is the stage where scientists and investigators can use forensic entomology to estimate the post-mortem interval. So advanced decay is the fourth stage, and this is when most, if not all, of the soft tissue has decomposed by now, leaving behind bones, hair, and tendons. Depending on the environment, any skin left over could become dry and leathery, which is when the mummification process basically happens, mm -hmm. where it sucks all the moisture out. And due to this, larger insects, such as beetles, will start to arrive to break down the tougher remaining tissues and cartilage. So the last stage is dry and skeletonized remains. It's characterized by no more decay and the remains drying out or becoming skeletonized, which kind of obvious based on the name, dry skeleton yeah. for me. <laughs> but it also means like there's not going to be any more grease on the bones because your bones are moist. Yeah, they are. Disturbing fact, sorry about that, everyone. Your bones are always wet. <laughs> we're, we're just wet sacks of bones. It's cool. There's no specific time frame of bones skeletonizing because there's so many different factors that can affect that. And if anyone's interested in learning more about the topic, the book Beyond the Body Farm that's written by Bill Bass and John Jefferson, that was my introduction to the body farm and it captured my attention. It was so interesting learning about everything that they do there. Oh, that's really cool. And I actually have experience at a animal body farm at the CSI Academy of Florida when I was an intern there for, a, for one summer. One of the employees there was doing her thesis on the decomposition process and she had five pig bodies that were slaughtered originally for meat and five bodies of I'm sorry if this if this disturbs some people, but five dog bodies. Okay. The dogs were were dogs that had that had to have been put down, um, not due to illness, but because they were very very violent and unable to be trained otherwise. Mm -hmm. And it was really cool seeing the process because they had cages over them to prevent large predators. That didn't stop some of them. I went to go. Long story short, the women that were running the study. They had to leave town for a couple days to go to a uh, blood spatter class in the, in the Florida Keys, and they tasked me with taking the photos, identifying the stage of decomposition. I get there one day, and there's a huge like paw print in the dirt, because this is in a forest, by the way, like quite a few yards into a forest away from the parking lot it was near. Mm -hmm. And one of the cages was broken, and there was the spine of one of the animals laying in the middle of the trail. Oh. It was already, it was probably in the advanced decomposition stage, mm -hmm. but still, it was just, made you think, it made you realize, you're not alone. Yeah. <laughs> you were not alone yeah. out there. There's some other big predator with a paw the size of, bigger than my fist, 
who was there and tried to get into tried to get at the bodies. That's crazy. But after their research, they let me take home a pig skull. Oh, that's cool. Do you still have it? I do. It's at my parents' house, but I was staying with my grandparents and my grandma at first. She was like, you are not bringing that into this house. So it was already in the dry skeletonized remains by the end of the summer. And I took an I took a old toothbrush and I very gently cleaned the skull to make sure there were no, no tissue remains left over mm-hmm. and no bugs on it. And then she let me bring it into the house. <laughs> you should bring it or take a picture i want to see i will i want to see it also i will put this photo on our instagram too because this photo did you know that deer can also they're omnivorous so they don't just eat plants yeah they eat meat too yeah there's a photo on the internet of a deer with a human rib, rib bone sticking out of its mouth because it got onto one of uh, body farm properties. Oh. <laughs> oh no. And it was so weird because it's just this docile deer. It was a doe. And then she looks at the camera and there's this long rib bone sticking out of her mouth. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> I was going to say, I know they're omnivorous, but do they prefer to eat plants? Is that why we usually think of I them think as so. herbivores? Okay. I'm not a deer expert. Yeah. But. I also think it's just availability. Like, deers are not really yeah. evolutionarily. They're not predi- predators. The, yeah, they're not. They don't have, like, anything to they're kill. They're not bred to hunt, yeah. necessarily. Like, what? what's a deer going to do? Stomp you to death? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I, I wouldn't even know that they could do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> they can stomp you pretty hard. <laughs> so, yes, that was our about the body farm i'll have more episodes about the type of research they do or like specific any like big scientific outcomes and like results from the studies so i just wanted to introduce you guys to the body farm and the stages of decomposition before future episodes where i dive into that well thank you that's that's very exciting Remember, don't poke a dead whale. Don't poke a dead whale. Or a sleeping dragon. Or a a deer that could stomp you to death. (laughs) Just stay away from the outdoors. Just be inside. Lock your doors. Lock your windows. And that's our safety tip. Thank you. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, thank you. Um, If you'd like to check out our Instagram, it is live, laugh, live, mortis. And we also have a TikTok that is at live dot. Oh, hold on. I still don't know the TikTok <laughs> name. One day I'll get it right. It's just not okay. today. But I will post a photo of the deer on the Instagram. I'm not going to post photos of decomposing bodies. Because obviously, that's against their guidelines. But if you are interested, I'm sure that there are, there are resources out there where you can view the body farm bodies. Yes. Did you ever go to bodies that Mosey exhibit? <laughs> no because i was really young my parents my mom had just given me the talk Uh and i got terrified because the very first part of that exhibit was the birthing process i'm like no i'm turning around i'm too young for this i'm going home oh i went through that i i that was actually my first like intrigue into like human anatomy was that if they didn't start with the birth process probably i would have stayed you know i i was also 
Well, I was older than you, but not that much older than you. And I don't remember that part. So maybe I just blacked out and then can't. That's the only part I can remember because I didn't go through it. Okay, yeah. It was really cool once you, like, you know, I don't remember that part. But once you kept going, like, it was really cool. Mm-hmm. It was cool to see all the, like, muscles. And they showed, like, the, the skeletal system, the nervous system, capillary system. Like, that was, that was really cool. Yeah, just as a child, you are mortified by the birth process human anatomy of reproduction and you want nothing to do with it yeah (laughs) i get that so if you'd like to go to our instagram to find more information it is live laugh liver mortis if you'd like to check out our tiktok to see some fun videos and upcoming sneak peeks of episodes it is live.laugh.liver and if you'd like to with an o Yes, liver with an O, like liver mortis. And if you'd like to send us an email about any weird animal death Or if you have experience being at a body farm and studying, let us know. We would love to share your experiences. Yeah, or if you have experience being dead, let us know. <laughs> email us from beyond the grave uh, at llivermortis at gmail.com. And we are also on spotify amazon music and apple podcasts yeah so if you want to listen to this episode again or any other of our episodes you can find us on other platforms so thank you all and this has been another episode of live laugh liver mortis